Section twenty three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section twenty three. Johnson's love of little children, which he discovered upon all occasions, calling them pretty dears and giving them sweetmeats was an undoubted proof of the real humanity and gentleness of his disposition footnote mr johnson writes mrs piozzi was exceedingly disposed to the general indulgence of children and was even scrupulously and ceremoniously attentive not to offend them he had strongly persuaded himself of the difficulty people always find to erase early impressions either of kindness or resentment End of footnote. his uncommon kindness to his servants and serious concern not only for their comfort in this world but their happiness in the next was another unquestionable evidence of what all who were intimately acquainted with him knew to be true nor would it be just under this head to omit the fondness which he showed for animals which he had taken under his protection i never shall forget the indulgence with which he treated hodge his cat for whom he himself used to go out and buy oysters lest the servants having that trouble should take a dislike to the poor creature i am unluckily one of those who have an antipathy to a cat so that i am uneasy when in the room with one and i own i frequently suffered a good deal from the presence of this same hodge i recollect him one day scrambling up dr johnson's breast apparently with much satisfaction while my friend smiling and half whistling rubbed down his back and pulled him by the tail and when i observed he was a fine cat saying why yes sir but i have had cats whom i liked better than this and then as if perceiving hodge to be out of countenance adding but he is a very fine cat a very fine cat indeed this reminds me of the ludicrous account which he gave mr langton of the despicable state of a young gentleman of good family sir when i heard of him last he was running about town shooting cats and then in a sort of kindly reverie he besought himself of his own favourite cat and said but hodge shan't be shot no no hodge shall not be shot he thought mr beauclerc made a shrewd and judicious remark to mr langton who after having been for the first time in company with a well-known wit about town was warmly admiring and praising him see him again said beauclerc his respect for the hierarchy and particularly the dignitaries of the church has been more than once exhibited in the course of this work mr seward saw him presented to the archbishop of york and described his bow to an archbishop as such a studied elaboration of homage such an extension of limb such a flexion of body as have seldom or ever been equalled 
footnote johnson on may the first seventeen eighty wrote of the exhibition dinner the apartments were truly very noble the pictures for the sake of a skylight are at the top of the house there we dined and i sat over against the archbishop of york see how i live when i am not under petticoat government it was archbishop markham whom he met he is mentioned by boswell in his hebrides in spite of the elaboration of homage johnson could judge freely of an archbishop he described the archbishop of chuham as a man coarse of voice and inelegant of language End of footnote. i cannot help mentioning with much regret that by my own negligence i lost an opportunity of having the history of my family from its founder thomas boswell in fifteen hundred and four recorded and illustrated by johnson's pen such was his goodness to me that when i presumed to solicit him for so great a favour he was pleased to say let me have all the materials you can collect and i will do it both in latin and english then let it be printed and copies of it be deposited in various places for security and preservation i can now only do the best i can to make up for this loss keeping my great master steadily in view family histories like the imagines maiorum of the ancients excite to virtue and i wish that they who really have blood would be more careful to trace and ascertain its course some have affected to laugh at the history of the house at ivory by lord percival afterwards earl of egmont he carried writes horace walpole the westminster election at the end of my father's ministry which he amply described in the history of his own family a genealogical work called the history of the house of ivory a work which cost him three thousand pounds and which was so ridiculous that he has since tried to suppress all the copies it concluded with the description of the westminster election in these or some such words and here let us leave this young nobleman struggling for the dying liberties of his country End of it will be well if many others would transmit their pedigrees to posterity with the same accuracy and generous zeal with which the noble lord who compiled that work has honoured and perpetuated his ancestry on thursday april the tenth i introduced to him at his house in bolt court the honourable and reverend william stuart son of the earl of bute a gentleman truly worthy of being known to johnson being with all the advantages of high birth learning travel and elegant manners an exemplary parish priest in every respect footnote five days earlier johnson made the following entry in his diary seventeen eighty three april fifth i took leave of mrs thrale i was much moved i had some expostulations with her she said that she was likewise affected i commended the thrales with great good will to god may my petitions have been heard this was not a formal taking of leave as hawkins says 
she was going to Bath. On May Day he wrote to her on the death of one of her little girls. I loved her, for she was Thrale's and yours, and by her dear father's appointment in some sort mine. I love you all, and therefore cannot without regret see the phalanx broken, and reflect that you and my other dear girls are deprived of one that was born your friend. To such friends every one that has them has recourse at last, when it is discovered, and discovered it seldom fails to be, that the fortuitous friendships of inclination or vanity are at the mercy of a thousand accidents. He was sadly thinking how her friendship for him was rapidly passing away. End of footnote. After some compliments on both sides, the tour which Johnson and I had made to the Hebrides was mentioned. Johnson. I got an acquisition of more ideas by it than by anything that I remember. I saw quite a different system of life. Footnote. Johnson modestly ended his account of the tour by saying, I cannot but be conscious that my thoughts on national manners are the thoughts of one who has seen but little. End of footnote. Boswell. You would not like to make the same journey again? Johnson. Why, no, sir, not the same. It is a tale told. Gravina, an Italian critic, observes that every man desires to see that of which he has read, but no man desires to read an account of what he has seen. So much does description fall short of reality. Description only excites curiosity. Seeing satisfies it. Other people may go and see the Hebrides. Boswell. I should wish to go and see some country totally different from what I have been used to, such as Turkey, where religion and everything else are different. Johnson. Yes, sir. There are two objects of curiosity, the Christian world and the Mohammedan world. All the rest may be considered as barbarous. Boswell. Pray, sir, is the Turkish Spy, a genuine book? Johnson. No, sir. Mrs. Manley, in her life, says that her father wrote the first two volumes. Footnote. She says that he was the genuine author of the first volume. An ingenious physician, she continues, with the assistance of several others, continued the work until the eighth volume. Mrs. Manley's history of her own life and times a gross, worthless book. Swift satirised her in Corinna a ballad. End of footnote. And in another book, Dunton's Life and Errors, we find that the rest was written by one soul at two guineas a sheet under the direction of Dr. Midgley. Footnote. The real author was I. P. Morana, a Genoese, who died at Paris in 1693. John Dunton, in his Life, says that Mr. William Bradshaw received from Dr. Midgley forty shillings a sheet for writing part of the Turkish spy, but I do not find that he anywhere mentioned so as engaged in that work. Malone, end of footnote. Boswell. 
this has been a very factious reign owing to the too great indulgence of government johnson i think so sir what at first was lenity grew timidity yet this is reasoning a posteriori and may not be just supposing a few had at first been punished i believe faction would have been crushed but it might have been said that it was a sanguinary reign a man cannot tell a priori what will be best for government to do this reign has been very unfortunate we have had an unsuccessful war but that does not prove that we have been ill-governed one side or other must prevail in war as one or other must win at play when we beat louis we were not better governed nor were the french better governed when louis beat us on saturday april the twelfth i visited him in company with mr wyndham of norfolk whom though a whig he highly valued one of the best things he ever said was to this gentleman who before he set out for ireland as secretary to lord northington when lord lieutenant expressed to the sage some modest and virtuous doubts whether he could bring himself to practise those arts which it is supposed a person in that situation has occasion to employ don't be afraid sir said johnson with a pleasant smile you will soon make a very pretty rascal Footnote. this was in june seventeen eighty three and i find in mr wyndham's private diary which it seems this conversation induced him to keep the following memoranda of dr johnson's advice i have no great timidity in my own disposition and am no encourager of it in others never be afraid to think yourself fit for anything for which your friends think you fit you will become an able negotiator a very pretty rascal no one in ireland wears even the mask of incorruption no one professes to do for sixpence what he can get a shilling for doing set sail and see where the winds and the waves will carry you every day will improve another dies diem docet by observing at night where you failed in the day and by resolving to fail so no more croker the wigs thought he made a very pretty rascal in a very different way on his opposition to whitbread's bill for establishing parochial schools romilly wrote that a man so enlightened as wyndham should take the same side which he has done most earnestly would excite great astonishment if one did not recollect his eager opposition a few months ago to the abolition of the slave trade he was also most strenuous in opposition to romilly's bill for repealing the act which made it a capital offence to steal to the amount of forty shillings in a dwelling-house he talked to-day a good deal of the wonderful extent and variety of london and observed that men of curious inquiry might see in it such modes of life as very few could even imagine 
he in particular recommended to us to explore Wapping, which we resolved to do. Footnote. We accordingly carried our scheme into execution in October 1792. But whether from that uniformity which has in modern times in a great degree spread through every part of the metropolis, or from our want of sufficient exertion, we were disappointed. Boswell, end of footnote. Mr. Lowe, the painter, who was with him, was very much distressed that a large picture which he had painted was refused to be received into the exhibition of the Royal Academy. Mrs. Thrale knew Johnson's character so superficially as to represent him as unwilling to do small acts of benevolence, and mentions in particular that he would hardly take the trouble to write a letter in favour of his friends. The truth, however, is that he was remarkable in an extraordinary degree for what she denies to him, and above all for this very sort of kindness, writing letters for those to whom his solicitations might be of service. He now gave Mr. Lowe the following, of which I was diligent enough with his permission to take copies at the next coffee-house, while Mr. Wyndham was so good as to stay by me. To Sir Joshua Reynolds, sir. Mr. Lowe considers himself as cut off from all credit and all hope by the rejection of his picture from the exhibition. Upon this work he has exhausted all his powers and suspended all his expectations, and certainly to be refused an opportunity of taking the opinion of the public is in itself a very great hardship. It is to be condemned without a trial. If you could procure the revocation of this incapacitating edict, you would deliver an unhappy man from great affliction. The council has sometimes reversed its own determination, and I hope that by your interposition this luckless picture may be got admitted. I am, etc. Samuel Johnson, April 12, 1783. To Mr. Barry, sir. Mr. Lowe's exclusion from the exhibition gives him more trouble than you and the other gentlemen of the council could imagine or intend. He considers disgrace and ruin as the inevitable consequence of your determination. He says that some pictures have been received after rejection, and if there be any such precedent, I earnestly entreat that you will use your interest in his favour. Of his work I can say nothing. I pretend not to judge of painting, and this picture I never saw. But I conceive it extremely hard to shut out any man from the possibility of success, and therefore I repeat my request that you will propose the reconsideration of Mr. Lowe's case, and if there be any among the council with whom my name can have any weight, be pleased to communicate to them the desire of, sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, April twelfth, 1783. Such intercession was too powerful to be resisted, and Mr. Lowe's performance was admitted at Somerset Place. Footnote. Northcote says that the picture, which was execrable beyond belief, was exhibited in an empty room. 
Low in 1769, not in 1771, as Northcote says, gained the gold medal of the Academy for the best historical picture. Northcote says that the award was not a fair one. He adds that Lowe, being sent to Rome by the patronage of the Academy, was dissatisfied with the sum allowed him. When Sir Joshua said that he knew from experience that it was sufficient, Lowe pertly answered that it was possible for a man to live on guts and garbage. He died at an obscure lodging in Westminster in 1793. There is, wrote Miss Burney, a certain poor wretch of a villainous painter, one Mr. Lowe, whom Dr. Johnson recommends to all the people he thinks can afford to sit for their picture. Among these he applied to Mr. Crutchley, one of Mr. Thrale's executors. But now, said Mr. Crutchley to me, I have not a notion of sitting for my picture, for who wants it? I may as well give the man the money without. But no, they all said that would not do so well. And Dr. Johnson asked me to give him my picture. And I assure you, sir, says he, I shall put it in very good company, for I have portraits of some very respectable people in my dining-room. After all I could say, I was obliged to go to the painter's, and I found him in such a condition, a room all dirt and filth, brats squalling and wrangling. Oh, says I, Mr. Lowe, I beg your pardon for running away, but I have just recollected another engagement. So I poked three guineas in his hand and told him I would come again another time, and then ran out of the house with all my might. A correspondent of the examiner, writing on May the 28th, 1873, said that he had met one of Lowe's daughters, who recollected, she told him, when a child, sitting on Dr. Johnson's knee, and his making her repeat the Lord's Prayer. She was Johnson's goddaughter. By a committee consisting of Millman, Thackeray, Dickens, Carlyle, and others, an annuity fund for her and her sister was raised. Lord Palmerston gave a large subscription. End of footnote. The subject, as I recollect, was the deluge. At that point of time when the water was verging to the top of the last uncovered mountain, near to the spot was seen the last of the antediluvian race, exclusive of those who were saved in the Ark of Noah. This was one of those giants, then the inhabitants of the earth, who had still strength to swim, and with one of his hands held aloft his infant child. Upon the small remaining dry spot appeared a famished lion, ready to spring at the child and devour it. Mr. Lowe told me that Johnson said to him, Sir, your picture is noble and probable. A compliment indeed said Mr. Lowe, from a man who cannot lie and cannot be mistaken. About this time he wrote to Mrs. Lucy Porter, mentioning his bad health and that he intended a visit to Lichfield. It is, says he, 
with no great expectation of amendment that I make every year a journey into the country, but it is pleasant to visit those whose kindness has been often experienced. On April the 18th, being Good Friday, I found him at breakfast in his usual manner upon that day, drinking tea without milk, and eating a cross bun to prevent faintness. We went to St. Clement's Church as formerly. When we came home from church, he placed himself on one of the stone seats at his garden door, and I took the other, and thus in the open air and in a placid frame of mind, he talked away very easily. Johnson, were I a country gentleman, I should not be very hospitable. I should not have crowds in my house. Boswell. Sir Alexander Dick tells me that he remembers having a thousand people in a year to dine at his house, that is, reckoning each person as one each time that he dined there. Johnson. That, sir, is about three a day. Boswell. How your statement lessens the idea. Johnson. That, sir, is the good of counting. It brings everything to a certainty which before floated in the mind indefinitely. Boswell. But omne ignotum pro magnifico est. One is sorry to have this diminished. Johnson. Sir, you should not allow yourself to be delighted with error. Boswell. Three a day seem but few. Johnson. No, sir, he who entertains three a day does very liberally, and if there is a large family, the poor entertain those three, for they eat what the poor would get. There must be superfluous meat, it must be given to the poor or thrown out. Boswell. I observe in London that the poor go about and gather bones, which I understand are manufactured. Johnson, yes, sir, they boil them, and extract a grease from them for greasing wheels and other purposes. Of the best pieces, they make a mock ivory, which is used for harps to knives and various other things. The coarser pieces they burn and pound and sell the ashes. Boswell, for what purpose, sir? Johnson, why, sir, for making a furnace for the chemists for melting iron. A paste made of burnt bones will stand a stronger heat than anything else. Consider, sir, if you are to melt iron, you cannot line your pot with brass, because it is softer than iron and would melt sooner, nor with iron, for though malleable iron is harder than cast iron, yet it would not do. But a paste of burnt bones will not melt. Boswell. Do you know, sir, I have discovered a manufacture to a great extent, of what you only piddle at, scraping and drying the peel of oranges. At a place in Newgate Street there is a prodigious quantity prepared which they sell to the distillers. Footnote. It is suggested to me by an anonymous annotator of my work that the reason why Dr. Johnson collected the peels of squeezed oranges may be found in the 58th, 358th, letter in Mrs. Piozzi's collection, where it appears that he recommended 
dried orange peel finely powdered as a medicine boswell end of footnote johnson sir i believe they make a higher thing out of them than a spirit they make what is called orange butter the oil of the orange inspissated which they mix perhaps with common pomatum and make it fragrant the oil does not fly off in the drying Boswell. i wish to have a good walled garden johnson i don't think it will be worth the expense to you we compute in england a park wall at a thousand pounds a mile now a garden wall must cost at least as much you intend your trees should grow higher than a deer will leap now let us see for a hundred pounds you could only have forty-four square yards which is very little for two hundred pounds you may have eighty-four square yards which is very well footnote there are two mistakes in this calculation both perhaps due to boswell eighty-four should be eighty-eight and square yards should be yards square if a wall cost a thousand pounds a mile a hundred pounds would build one hundred and seventy-six yards of wall which would form a square of forty-four yards and enclose an area of one thousand nine hundred thirty-six square yards and two hundred pounds would build three hundred fifty-two yards of wall which would form a square of eighty-eight yards and enclose an area of seven thousand seven hundred forty-four square yards the cost of the wall in the latter case as compared with the space enclosed would therefore be reduced to one half End of footnote. but when will you get the value of two hundred pounds of walls in fruit in your climate no sir such contention with nature is not worth while i would plant an orchard and have plenty of such fruit as ripen well in your country my friend dr madden of ireland said that in an orchard there should be enough to eat enough to lay up enough to be stolen and enough to rot upon the ground cherries are an early fruit you may have them and you may have the early apples and pears boswell we cannot have nonpareils johnson sir you can no more have nonpareils than you can have grapes boswell we have them sir but they are very bad johnson no sir never try to have a thing merely to show that you cannot have it from ground that would let for forty shillings you may have a large orchard and you see it costs you only forty shillings nay you may graze the ground when the trees are grown up you cannot while they are young boswell is not a good garden a very common thing in england sir johnson not so common sir as you imagine in lincolnshire there is hardly an orchard in staffordshire very little fruit boswell has langton no orchard johnson no sir boswell how so sir johnson why sir from the general negligence of the county he has it not because nobody else has it boswell 
a hothouse is a certain thing i may have that johnson a hothouse is pretty certain but you must first build it then you must keep fires in it and you must have a gardener to take care of it boswell but if i have a gardener at any rate johnson why yes boswell i'd have it near my house there is no need to have it in the orchard johnson yes i'd have it near my house i would plant a great many currants the fruit is good and they make a pretty sweetmeat i record this minute detail which some may think trifling in order to show clearly how this great man whose mind could grasp such large and extensive subjects as he has shown in his literary labours was yet well informed in the common affairs of life and loved to illustrate them End of section twenty three